Uh, as we get started, I wanted to take a minute to thank those of you who are volunteering to say publicly to everybody this morning, as we did in the first gathering, we acknowledge that there's people volunteering in places that we no longer see very easily. At the school, we could see the food volunteers the whole morning, you know, the kids coming in and out much more actively, um, and that's still happening. So thanks to those of you who served with the kids upstairs uh, the first hour and are joining with us now. Thanks to uh, the Wills family for doing food this morning, all you food service people um, for providing just the hospitality that comes with the ease of grabbing some food and we're just grateful for those of you who have made a regular commitment to, to serving here at church. Well, I can remember the crunchy dirt in the batter's box at this little teeny diamond of a field, this gem in Auburn called Beggs Field. I was 13 years old. It was the second game of the season, brand new baseball season. And uh, I remember walking up into the batter's box, crunch, crunch. Like, the, 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 almost nobody had been there, right? It's that when the, when the dirt is still, still fresh. And I hit my very first ever, maybe, actually, it's the only time I ever hit one out. But it was the very first, nevertheless, it was the very first time I hit a home run out of the park. And I remember, like, floating around the bases. And I remember seeing the ball land right over the fence in right field on this little green knoll. And I just remember just being ecstatic and just running around the bases. I can't believe it hit a home run out of the park. And it was the classic scene. The, the, the dugout emptied. They ran out. They met me at home plate. Everybody's jumping up and down, high fives, right? This is first home run of the season. And I was 13, so I kept celebrating. I kept jumping around. And whenever the people kind of calmed down and got back to the game, I wasn't quite interested in doing that. So I remember I ran up to the chain link fence that separated the dugout from the rest of the field, and I just was shaking it. I was so excited. And in the process, the fence slapped my coach in the face, who uh, instantly then turned to me and said, calm down. And then he turned away from me because I got him right in the nose, and I, he didn't know that I heard him, and he said it under his breath, but I actually did hear him. He said, you got lucky. And I, I believed it. Um, and I shot my confidence. Like for the rest of the season, I struggled emotionally. I got one hit the rest of the season. I was just a mess. Um, it was a great experience. I hit the ball out of the park but I remember it as this painful memory where uh, these words were spoken about me that just that crushed, right? That just crushed me down. A couple years later, I'm a sophomore in high school. It's the end of a preseason practice before school starts, and the coach called me into his office, the football coach called me into his office, and it was instantly apparent that he was not happy with me and uh, he sat me down on the bench, and he just started laying out his complaints, and he punctuated his last point by driving his fist into the bench. And he, said, he looked at me, and he said, you're the leader of this team, and you're not leading. And I just floated out of that office a couple minutes later. I just soared out of there. And I don't remember anything that he said except, you're the leader. I didn't know I was the leader. Nobody had ever identified that for me before. It was like fuel. For my, for my life, I mean, it was just a, I was, it was a bad thing. I was being disciplined by a football coach, and yet it's, one of the, it's still one of the most significant moments in terms of shaping my self-understanding and my confidence that I've ever had. So we had a good experience that is a painful memory, 
because of the words that were spoken. I have a painful experience or a bad experience that actually is a beautiful memory because of the words that were spoken. Changed my life. We're in week three of a series called um, Influence, and the, the hope for this series is to provide some really practical ways to do restoration. We're talking about the influence that we have and ways to use it for good, for restoration, not for destruction. And as a foundation for this series, we told a story, the big story of Scripture. And it's absolutely critical that we know this story and we can tell this story. What's the story? It's this simply stated, that a good God made a good world. But then humanity in our rebellion and selfishness pushed back against God. And in the process, good things were broken. Surprisingly, however, God did not respond by turning his back toward us, but instead promised to always be with us and never leave or forsake us. And then in the, in the climax of the story, God himself comes to earth as a, as a man, Jesus Christ, who hurts with us and hurts for us. And then finally, to restore all things, now we are called by God to join with God in his mission of restoration. So this is the big story of the Bible, really simply stated. And I'm trying to say that we got to know it, we got to share it, we got to be able to talk about it, and more importantly, probably, we need to live it out. We need to act on it. So this series, this influence series, is an attempt to offer several really practical ways of engaging this story of restoration in our lives as we work and go to school and do the things that we do throughout the week. So we're talking about practical ways to do restorative work, such as two weeks ago, I talked about simply offering a hopeful vision. That is the first way we can, we can begin the work of restoration is walk into a mess of just reality. We don't even have to go find a especially bad one, but just in the midst of life, we can be the ones, because we have an understanding of the bigger story, we can be the ones that offer a vision that is hopeful. A second, a second way, Jeremiah Aha preached last week, and he talked about simply embracing rituals and rhythms of restoration. And he had a lot of examples of these. Some of them were being present. This is not rocket science, right? This is very simple. Being present, being where you are. Offering presence before a program. He talked about living a life that evokes questions. Why are, you, why are you giving your money away? Why are you loving that person? Why are you spending time in this place? Why are you doing, right? Evoking questions with a lifestyle. Scheduling and prioritizing blessing people. Eating with people. I'll give a bunch of examples. Rhythms and rituals of restoration. Ways we can build into our lifestyle Ways that, that put things back together. Uh, today, I want to talk about words. I want to talk about the words that we speak. And the big idea this morning is simply this, that one of the most powerful ways that we can restore what is broken is and influence those around us for good and not for bad is to use our words, the ways we use our words. Super, super simple. Let me ask a couple of questions uh, as we start up here. First, why are words so powerful? I want to argue that it's one reason is because words do more than just the practical identification of something or description of something. Words name the thing. They, ident they, they name it, they, and they can name a person too. They can identify the characteristics of a person. They can identify what's true and real and possible in the person. That's why words carry such power. That's why naming can be such a powerful thing whether it's a formal naming or an informal naming. When we speak words about a person like, you got lucky, 
or you're the leader. These are words that attach to us like names. They shape us. They form us. It is no small thing to name a child. Uh, Carmen and I spent, we, we saw this as a, as a high responsibility and privilege with the children that we were blessed to have. And we approached the naming process with as much intentionality as any decision we've ever made. Because we believe that in naming somebody, we're not just putting a word on them, but that we're giving them a narrative. We're, we're calling them into a story. We're saying, we see you as part of this bigger story, and we want to call you into that, even with your name. This story reveals something about your identity, who you are, the value that, that you have, whether or not it's good news that you're here. So this naming experience actually takes place all through life, not just when we're born, not just that formal initial naming. And every time a person receives a name, like believes it, like when he said, you got lucky and I believed it, every time somebody receives a name, it's powerful. Whether it's a name that's officially written down on a governmental form or it's just written down in our hearts, it's powerful every time because that, that kind of word use is powerful. It carries force. And you see this especially with little kids who don't have a filter yet, and they'll just tell you what they think. She called me a name. She said I was stupid, and they're just wrecked, right? Or she said I was her best friend, and their whole life is just adjusted by it. Right? Later, I think we learn how to move through life and not let some of these words stick inside us, at least mostly. It still takes a lot of effort for most of us to deal with words that are spoken to us, and I think the reason is just very simple. Words are powerful. They carry weight. Now they carry force. A word given to a person like a name can inspire somebody forward, can invite them to experience and live into their strengths, which might have otherwise lied dormant, unnoticed, or unclaimed throughout their life. This isn't to say that when you name somebody, you fix some sort of predetermined identity on them, or certainly not to say use names to control somebody or their outcome, but it is to say some, essentially that naming can cast vision. Naming can sort of give them a, a, a it can give them fuel for a dream, can change a perspective. These are the positive sides. On the negative side, of course, naming can be a very wounding thing. It can inflict pain. And you and I have been given several names, haven't we? I would argue and I would invite, we could have a conversation this morning about the names that we've been given, both the formal names and the informal names. Words that have been spoken. I heard stories from the end of the first gathering till we started this one. People coming up to me, this is, what, this is the name I was given both good and bad, right? Harmful and helpful. Sometimes a name can be virtually synonymous with our identity. The, the line between the two is almost indiscernible. Like this word on the screen, six letters arranged in this order, right? And I'm not, give me another one. Nathan, that's me. That's who I am, right? I see that word and it just, it, that's who I am. That The line between that word and me, is, is, it's super thin. I identify so clearly with that word. That's the word that has been spoken over me. That's the word that has been identified with me. I respond to that word. That's the, that's the word that has been given as my identifier. And then there's other names that are also mine but are just a little less known because they're spoken um, less frequently, like my middle name, Leander. Aren't middle names weird? Yeah, go ahead. I'll just sideline. We can talk about my weird middle name for a second, right? 
It's always been my name. You have a middle name. It's always been your name. You've been a part of it since you were born, and yet it probably feels a little bit strange because probably it's not the name people use to refer to you. Whereas, like, if, they, if somebody says Nathan to me, instantly I'm looking at them. I was at a football game yesterday, and the family sitting behind me had a kid, number nine, out on the field, and his name was... Nathan, and the kid, they're talking about Nathan, 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 and they're cheering for Nathan, and every single time, it distracted me, and I started looking back, like, and I finally turned around and said to these two women, I'm sorry, um, my name's Nathan, so whenever you say Nathan, I think you're talking to me, I'm not trying to be weird, and nothing's wrong, but I'm just turning around and looking at you, because that's, that's my name, too, it's like automatic, whereas if you say the name, or you say the word Leander, I might go, oh, that sounds familiar, that's weird. Uh, that's a very strange word to say, but, I, but it, isn't as, um, it isn't as like personal or something. I actually love my middle name, but I didn't always love my middle name. Uh, it's kind of a weird name, and like anything different or odd, it evoked a bit of teasing in junior high, because junior hires can find something to tease you about whatever uh, they want to, right? So I remember the, the rehearsal for eighth grade graduation. They're going to say everybody's name as they go across the stage. Nathan Leander Oates. And they said, Leanderthal. It's like, how did you come up with that? It's like, I thought I was immune. How, how do, can you do anything with that word? Yeah, so I didn't always love my name, but in my early 20s, I, now I love it, because in my early 20s, I was researching names for our first child, and I discovered for the very first time that Leander, it means lion man. Yeah, that's strong. That's good. <laughs> Come on, I like that name. And then uh, like a decade later, I was reading books about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, and I learned that one of the Knights of the Round Table, like sitting right next to Sir Lancelot, oh yeah, Sir Leander. That's right. That's really good. So now I love the name. I love the name, right? Because it carries meaning. It's got some sort of, some sort of vision behind it. It, it, it. it fuels my imagination. It calls me to a higher place. It's not just some weird word that somebody in my family has, right? But it actually calls me forward. So, and so I love that. Your name is Lion Man. You are pledged to defend the king. Yes, I am. That's who I am. I love that, right? I just absolutely love it. So you and I have been given all kinds of names, good words, and bad words. Essentially, the reason I love the name Leander and the reason I like the name Nathan, too, is because they've become good words to me. That's why I like them. That's why they're valuable to me, because they're good words. And you and I have been named good things and bad things our whole life. I want to remind you of something that you already know, but it's important, at least for me, to be reminded of this. And it is this, that whether the words are good or bad, words go in. That's where words go. Words go in. You can close your eyes if you don't want to see it. You can close your mouth if you don't want to taste it. Can't close your ears. They don't close. You can try to cover them, and we do. La, 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 but it almost never works, right? Typically, when we think about the power of words, we think about the words that we say, we think about the words that come out of our mouths, it can be easy to forget that words also go in. They go into our ears, into our children's ears, into our spouse's ears, into our community's ears, into our colleagues' ears. And unless the person who's hearing these words develops a pretty sophisticated emotional filtering system, these words also get embedded in their hearts. They stick. They stick in our children's hearts, in our spouse's hearts, in our family's hearts, our co-workers' hearts. 
I think we consistently underestimate the power of the words that we speak, especially the words that we speak to our children, especially the words we speak to people who are vulnerable. I got to take some baseball coaches to lunch after the, the summer baseball season, and I was asking them what they appreciated, what they enjoyed about coaching. And one guy had such an interesting insight. He said, a coach is there at the point of failure and gets to speak. Ah, it's awesome, right? What a privilege to be there at somebody's worst moment. You struck out with the bases loaded and we needed the, the run. And now you get to speak into that vulnerable moment. I think we underestimate the power of the words that are about to be spoken, the words that are about to come inside. There's such power here because you're not just describing a thing. You're not just describing a behavior. You are naming a person. You are painting a picture of what could be and you're calling them into it. Another question, a second question, what does the Bible say about words? It's almost an overwhelming question because it just says so much about words. It, it, it's talking about words, with words. It is the word, right? It's just, it's overwhelming how much the Bible says about words. Let me give you just three big categories. The Bible makes a massive link between the creation of all things and words, Right? One of the first things we read in the Bible is God spoke all creation into being. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So all of creation is intricately, intimately linked with words. A second thing that's linked with words is identity. A really interesting way to study the Bible is to just go through and make note of the names of people, the names of places, and the names that are given to God. Stories are told in just the, simply in the names. We, sometimes there's, there's parts that, they, like, they fill in, they named it this because such and such had happened. But the, the story is, is, is held in the name itself. It's so powerful. Identity in Scripture is linked to, um, to naming. And, and this is not just this static thing. This, it, it tells the story Naming calls something forth that is not yet fully developed. Like when Jesus says to Simon, you are rock, you're Peter. He said the word Petra. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Simon's like, what? You know, but he's calling forward this un, as of yet unrealized truth about who Peter actually is, but just isn't really living like at that point. So he calls, words can call forward things that are not yet fully realized. Words can also pronounce judgment. Like when Jesus calls the Pharisees, you are whitewashed tombs. In other words, you're a place of death and decay in nice clothing. You're rotten inside, but you've got a really nice suit on. You're a whitewashed tomb. Whew, you're like strong, uh, like classifying or judgmental kind of statements. So some big concepts in scripture are linked to words. Existence, identity, a third, religion. Major theme in scripture, right? Most of the teachings in the Bible about the use of words have to do with polluting or purifying the mind, the body, or the world. Almost anything that the Bible teaches about how to use your words is talking about either a polluting effect or a purifying effect of pretty much anything, intimate, heart, and cosmic, like environment or world. 
All through scripture we read about this, and it's not just in scripture, right? This is all around us all the time. Half of news is just about what people are saying now, right? There's all kinds of healing and hurting happening with words all around us. This, is very, this should be very native to us, this, this idea of the power of words. And so that's basically the big idea for the sermon this morning is that words are powerful. You can use them to hurt. You can use them to heal. You can use words to destroy things or to restore things. And this has the danger, this message has the danger of sounding so simple that we disregard it. Okay, this is a tool of restoration. Are you serious? My words. We also consider as tools of restoration really dramatic and important things like digging a well in Africa for villages that have no water or advocating against some sort of governmental systemic problem in Cambodia, right? Or, or supporting and um, advocating for adoption in the United States. We think, well, that's a good tool of restoration. Well, yeah, I know it is, but so is the use of your words. Some of you will never go to Africa and you'll never dig a well. But this afternoon, you're going to say something to somebody. It's either going to help them or it's going to hurt them. It's either going to be a word of restoration or it's going to be a word of, of, of destruction. There are very few truly neutral words. Taken into consideration environment, emotion, situation, very few truly neutral words. You are helping or you are hurting with your words. It's a great tool of restoration if that's what you want to be about. Even this afternoon, you can do some really powerful restorative work through the words that you speak. So that's the message this morning. It's super simple. Um, that's the big idea. Let me just hit a couple of four, actually, really practical ideas that I hope will, will catalyze some more thought or imagination or action, ultimately. Four ideas quickly. Because words are so powerful, idea number one, talk less. Talk less, says the preacher. Yeah. Post less. Text less. Put less out there. There's so much noise out there. Have you noticed how much noise there is? Yeah. I, I, I want to go to a restaurant that doesn't have a TV that's playing. Um, I want to talk to somebody in a coffee shop and not hear everybody else's conversation on their phones on speaker. Come on. That drives me crazy, right? I, I want to not hear so many commercials. I want the, um, the, the volume level on the commercial to not go double the level of the music. There's so much noise everywhere. There's a sense in which the large amount of words is lessening the power of words, right? If you're always talking, I'm done listening. I'm not listening anymore. You're talking too much. <laughs> Which is really ironic for me to be saying that right now. Right. Just noise. Talk less, post less, say fewer words. Second idea, because words are so powerful, choose the words you say carefully and intentionally. When you're commenting about somebody's work, be intentional about the words you choose. When you're commenting about somebody's performance in a game or in a, in a musical performance, use your words carefully. When you write a note, when you post on some sort of online announcement, use your words carefully. When you correct your kids or when you encourage them, be specific, be intentional. Don't just gush. Oh my gosh, you did so great. You killed that. It was so amazing. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, that was so amazing. No. I could see you working hard when it got difficult. I admire that. Proud of you. Be specific. Be clear and careful. Choose your words carefully. Third idea, because words are so powerful, 
Don't use them to degrade beautiful things. I took a couple of days away last week to write and to be quiet, and I had spent an entire day in silence, speaking to no one, and I drove into town in time to get to a store before it closed at 9 p.m. because I needed some granola for breakfast the next day. And as I'm in the aisle trying to choose my cereal, I can't help because they're speaking so loudly and they're speaking so profanely to overhear a conversation from the aisle over. And in 60 seconds, these three people use their words to profane women, a specific nationality, the human body, sexual intimacy, and life itself. In 60 seconds. Now, I'm pretty proficient at the English language. I knew what they were trying to say. I knew what they were trying to communicate. But what disgusted me was that they were talking, in fact, about beautiful things, good things. But they were, they were just profaning them with their use of words. They were talking about things that were good and right and beautiful, but they were turning them into something that was disastrous and perverted and, and fallen because of the words that they were using. I mean, I think it's, it's one thing to use crass language to talk about crass objects, like feces. I don't care what you call it. It's not going to get any more degraded depending on the word you use. That's just, it's poop, all right? It doesn't get any lower, right? But I believe it's totally different when you're using crass language to talk about things which are actually good and beautiful, why? What's the difference there? Because in doing so, you are furthering the brokenness of creation. You're extending and celebrating, frankly, the perversion of what was once good and right and beautiful. You're degrading the beautiful. You're profaning the sacred when you're using crass language to refer to beautiful and good things. So don't use words to degrade the good. And then a final idea, because words are so powerful... Resolve to build people up even when you're confronting them, even when you're correcting them. This is becoming a lost art in our culture because in our culture, there's almost this inability to disagree with a behavior without also assassinating the person's character, right? We, have, we almost can't seem to do one without the other. This, would be, this is the difference between the 13-year-old shaking the fence and sit down, calm down, addressing the behavior, and you got lucky, naming the identity, you know, identifying the character of the person or the performance or the, something core about the person. We, we don't want to slip into this, especially with our kids, especially with those in our family. We, we do not want to use our words as weapons. Um, people stop hearing when you do that. Have you noticed that? They stop listening when you do that. Anybody get an occasional critical email Anybody got a, a work or a business like that? Just once in a while, occasionally. This is what I've noticed when I get critical emails. Once I detect the critical spirit of the email, I stop reading. I'm not disciplined enough to shut it off. No, I'm too fascinated like driving by a car wreck. But I stop reading and I start scanning like it's a fight. Because now I'm in protective mode and I'm looking for that most dangerous foe on the horizon. I'm looking for that word that's really going to get me good. So I stop reading, and I'm just defending. I'm not listening anymore. I'm not reading anymore. Later, I'll go back, and I'll soak in every little adjective, right? And I'll just kill myself with it. But at first, I'm not even listening. Contrast that to a couple of days ago, last week, I had a birthday. And people wrote me some beautiful cards. 
And it's a whole different posture in my reading of those cards. I can tell right from the start, they're going to they're gonna love me with these words. And I do. I just read them and I savor the words and I soak in the words and I go, wow, that's, really? That's how you feel about me? That's beautiful. And I get inspired by that. Or I get encouraged by that. Yeah. I think, it's, I think the, the fact that I stop perceiving what is being said in a critical email reveals the destructive power of words. I think... And by contrast, the, the fact that I slow down and just savor the words in, an, in a note of encouragement or a birthday card shows the creative power and the fortifying power of words. So the fourth idea, as I've said, is when you're confronting behaviors, which you probably do every day if you have relationships with people, if you're confronting behaviors, don't, don't criticize the person. Build them up. Build them up. It sounds like this. It sounds like this, something like this. You're my son, and I love you. And, and I don't want you to do this. This is not the way we do it. I don't want to do this kind of thing to you. I, I don't want to accept you doing it to somebody else. This isn't the way we do This isn't who you really are. Right? It's an attempt at, at loving the person, building the person up, while addressing the behavior. It's, the, it's my sophomore coach saying, you're not leading, but sending me out of the room with wings because he's saying, and you're the leader. See, he, he, he accomplished it perfectly. He could have torn me down. He didn't. He addressed and corrected a bad behavior and in the process built me up. So final thought, it doesn't need to be grace or truth. It doesn't need to be grace or truth. The Christian ideal is grace and truth, truth and grace. Right? This is how John begins his gospel. The word, he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us full of grace and truth at the same time, full of grace and truth. All right. Well, I think the examples from real life are the most powerful. So I've invited a few people to share brief stories about a word, a helpful word or a hurtful word that was spoken to them. So with the few of you that are able to do that this gathering, uh, come on up. And Sandy, you're free to um, do what you need. Yeah. Stephanie, if you could come up and Stephen, come on up. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. Um. Sorry. Okay. Can you reach that, Steph, please? Check, check. <laughs> Thanks. That'll be awesome. There you go. Okay. Good morning. Is this on? Yep. Okay. So my story starts in the late 80s. I was sitting in my apartment reading the Los Angeles Times newspaper. The religion section had an article on um, someone who had become one of my favorite authors. His name's Brennan Manning. And this is what I read way back then. He wrote, the only lasting freedom from self-consciousness comes from a profound awareness that God loves me as I am and not as I should be. 
that he loves me beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity. He loves me in the morning sun and the evening rain without caution, regret, boundary, limit, or breaking point. That no matter what I do, he can't stop loving me. When I am really in conscious communion with the reality of the wild, passionate, relentless, stubborn, pursuing, tender love of God and Jesus Christ for me, then it's not that I have to, or I got to, or I must, or I should, or I ought. I suddenly want to change because of how deeply I am loved. So I read that, and I thought, I, I want to hear this guy speak. So my wife and I ended up going to a weekend retreat that he was leading. I talked to him at the retreat. Um, some time passed, and I wrote him some letters, and remarkably, he wrote me back, like real letters, his <laughs> handwriting. And it was, I was just amazed that he took the time to put a stamp in an envelope and, on an envelope and sent it to me. And then time went by, and, and Brandon and I lost contact, and then a few years ago, he was going to be the guest speaker at William Jessup for uh, a lot of the local pastors. And so I went. And it was at a time in my life when I was, like, just broken from really uh, difficult stuff at work. Um, emotionally, I was at a low point, and I just wanted to go hear him talk. And he was standing up front before it happened. Nobody was talking to him, so I went down there and said hi. And he looked really frail. It was just a little bit before he passed away. He said, hi, Brennan. I'm Stephen. I don't know if you remember me, but, I, you know, we've exchanged letters before, and he said, I remember you, and he asked me how my work was, and I was working with children, and he said, how, how are your children, how, how's work going, and I was like, my gosh, he remembers me, yeah. we talked for a little bit, and a line started to develop next to me of people that also wanted to shake his hand and say hi, so I was getting a little bit uncomfortable that I was taking up his time, so I kind of stepped aside, and this is what he does. He turns to the next guy and he says, have you met Stephen? He's good news. Mm. And it floored me. I was like, mm. all I could hear was that word. He's, or those words, he's good news. Because mm. it was at a time when I was not good news <laughs> in my head. Mm -hmm. I couldn't wait to get out to the, to the parking lot and call my wife and say, you'll never believe what Bren Manning just did. And it stuck with me. I'm so grateful that Nathan reminded me because sometimes I forget that this happened to me. To think that we just don't read good news. We are good news. You, yeah. you all are good news. And I think that's something that we should latch on to. Amen. That's great. Have you met Stephanie? <laughs> She's good news. Good, good. Okay, sorry. <laughs> hey, everybody. I'll move up here a little bit. There we go. <laughs> All right. So um, I received a good word when I was 13 as well. 
So there's something about 13, middle school. Um, I think we're really vulnerable at that time, maybe insecure. And at the time, I was in eighth grade, I believe, and I was into singing in the choir, cheerleading, and drama. That was just kind of my life. I really enjoyed performing, doing um, things to communicate up front. And I had a teacher that year, Mr. Burbank, who at the end of the year uh, came up to me and asked me if I had ever heard of Child Evangelism Fellowship, an organization that he had some ties with. And he said, Sandy, you're an evangelist. And you are good at, I believe you'll, be, you'll continue to be good at um, helping people in the world find Jesus. And to me, that, that just gave so much value to me and kind of turned a direction for me from just doing stuff up front that gave me joy to, wow, I have real purpose in these gifts that God has given me. And like Nate said, it, it gives you fuel, you know, one way or the other, right? And so this fueled my life uh, in high school. I had a certain boldness with my friends. I could speak right to them about the Lord. Um, it fueled me in mission trips, parachurch ministries, um, youth ministry, church planting. And then currently right now, my passion is just being involved in the community uh, in different groups and being able to share my life, being um, relationally and uh, just connected with people mm -hmm. in order to be able to give them the reason uh, that I have hope. And so I'm just grateful. I'm grateful for those words that fueled my life and helped me to understand who I am. Great. Thank you, Sandy. That's great. Can I just sure. tell it from down here? I wrote it out so I would keep it short and not tell too many jokes. So. If you were a third grade girl at Kyrene de la Colina in Phoenix, Arizona, you spent your recess in the bathroom. <laughs> not really the bathroom so much as the lobby where we sat facing each other on the cool tile floor. Star Search was the biggest show on TV. Can I hear what, what, anybody? And <laughs> The Little Mermaid was everyone's favorite show. So we went around the circle, taking turns singing Part of Your World. After our amateur competition ended, I was declared the winner. I was the best singer. The problem was that singers have to be performers, and I was terrified of the stage. It's amazing how many words people declare over you when you're on a stage. Hmm. And I was more afraid of the words than actually performing and I heard them all. I started singing in church when I was five years old. Every word was food that I digested completely, and it either made me healthier or sicker. Good, bad, too loud, too quiet, too much, not enough. In eighth grade, a teacher pulled me aside after choir practice. She noticed my hesitancy and reluctance in performing. Stephanie, it's because you're not a performer, you're a worshiper. I'm a worshiper. So the words people said were about how I did, not who I was. And they weren't my audience. Suddenly my identity shifted. I felt freer and I felt joy. 
This continued at a deeper level when in my early 20s, a worship pastor who fed into me told me I was not just a worshiper, but a worship leader. Now, I wasn't as concerned about words said about me on the stage. My words were pointing others to Jesus when I was on the stage. And not just through singing, and not just on a stage, but in my whole life, I now know I am called to point worshipers to Jesus. Amen. That's great. Thank you. Good job, you guys. Thanks so much for sharing. Thank you. That's good. Well, let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the power of words, for those who have spoken truthful words to each of us. We also pray for grace to recognize false words that have been spoken, that have been embraced, that are still inside, still doing destructive work. And we pray for the courage and the grace to reject these untruths and to embrace restoration and also to work for it in the lives of others. In Jesus' name, amen.